All right, well, we are looking at the parable of the soils, and I'm at the end of my slideshow, so I'm going to just don't mind the, the guy behind the counter or behind the curtain. I'm just going to jump all the way back to the beginning. We're at the parable of the soils, and what you see behind me is the, the schedule for us. The, the first one up is the parable of the soils from here. We're going to go into the wise and foolish builders, the wicked servant, the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, uh, the parable of the talents, and then finally the hidden treasure and pearl of great price. But notice there, between uh, June 2nd, week 3, and week 4, we are off for a week, and that's the week of Camp Compass. So just notice that. Otherwise, we're, we're pretty consecutive through the, the summer, but that week we will not be meeting on campus here. Uh, so please pay attention to that. But before we really dive into the parables, it's, it's helpful to know what a parable is, isn't it? And a good way to think about parables are the parables are the illustrations of the Bible. A, a parable is a story with a point or a story with a moral. And Jesus is the one that told the most parables, but Jesus wasn't the only one who used parables in the Bible. In fact, if you were with us in our 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel series, we encountered a parable uh, in 2 Samuel uh, when David committed his sin with, with Bathsheba. And you remember Nathan went to David to confront him over his sin. Do you remember when he did that? And what did Nathan do? Nathan went to David and he didn't go to David and say, hey, David, you really messed up. Hey, David, the Lord wants you to be pure and you were impure. Hey, David, the Lord doesn't want you to commit adultery and you committed adultery. Hey, David, the Lord doesn't want you to murder and you committed murder. Hey, David, the Lord doesn't want you to cover up and deceive and to lie and you did all those things. Nathan didn't do any of that, though that's what he was trying to communicate, right? What did Nathan do? Nathan went to David and he told him a story. He told him a parable, but he told him a story with a point. Right? He sat down with, with King David, and this wasn't a bedtime story for David. This was, hey, King David, I've, I've got a, a story for you. It, there was a, a man, a rich man, who had plenty, had hundreds of sheep. And in that same village, there was a, a poor man who had one lamb. And that one lamb was the family pet, and the family loved that lamb. And a visitor came and stayed with the rich man, and the rich man said, well, I'm not going to get one of my many sheep. I'm going to go to this poor man's house, and I'm going to steal his sole lamb, the family pet, and I'm going to kill that lamb and serve it to my guest. And David, you remember, hears this story and gets enraged and says, that man deserves to die. And then here comes the punchline. Here comes the point of the story when Nathan looks at David and says, what, you are, you're the man. You're that man, David. And all of a sudden, the same content of, well, you know what, David, you sinned greatly. You stole. You committed adultery. You lusted in your heart after this woman. You lusted physically after this woman. You slept with somebody, not your wife. You lied. You covered it up. You murdered. You, all, all of those things, which are true and were, were, David was guilty of, all of that came crashing down because David heard it presented in this story form. It has a way to impact us and to hit us differently. Well, that's what a parable does. But as we get into the parables, it's, it's helpful to figure out the, the purpose of the parables. Because Jesus begins teaching in parables in Matthew chapter 13, which is one of the, the passages that we're going to be looking at tonight. And the disciples are a little bit confused. And so they go to Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. And they ask him this question. They said, the disciples came to him in Matthew 13, 10 and said to him, Why? Do you speak to them, meaning the, the crowds, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, well, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and, what he, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus identifies two purposes for the parables. 
purpose number one for his teaching in parables was to give instruction to those with ears to hear. To help those who would listen, to help his true followers understand more about what he calls the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. That word secrets there is the Greek word mysterion, which is where we get our English word, what? Mystery, right? And it, it means something that was concealed that's now revealed. And specifically, Jesus was revealing what the Old Testament had alluded to. Jesus was taking the things that they were anticipating, the things that they weren't really fully wrapping their minds around and understanding from the Old Testament prophecy, which is part of the reason why he goes back to Isaiah 6 with this quotation in Matthew chapter 13. He's going back, he's reaching back and saying some of your expectations about the Messiah and about the kingdom of heaven and about the good news and about what deliverance really looks like. Jesus says, this has been shrouded, this has been mysterious to you, but I'm here to pull back the curtain on some of that. And that's one of the purposes for the parables. John MacArthur in his book on the parables says this, Our Lord was about to start taking the lid off everything the Old Testament had kept shrouded in typology, symbolism, and prophetic hints. He's going to take the lid off. I like that image that, that MacArthur gives there. And so the first purpose for the parables were to instruct those with ears to hear. But the second purpose for the parables was the, the opposite. It was to bring judgment on those who refused to hear. Jesus says, but to them it has not been given. And then he quotes this Isaiah 6 prophecy. You're going to hear, but you're not going to understand. And you're going to see, but you're never going to perceive. Why? Well, this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. The parables for those that are followers of Jesus are instruments of, of instruction and teaching. They're extensions of the grace of God to help us understand more. But to those that have chosen to reject him and the crowds that gather around Jesus, the parables were an instrument and extension of judgment. In fact, Jesus was teaching things in a way that was less than plain so that the crowds wouldn't understand. You say, well, that sounds cruel. Well, why? Well, because, to go back to the quote from Isaiah, this, this people's heart has grown dull from hearing. These were the religious leaders. These were the Pharisees. These were the people that had, had thought they had it all together that were rejecting Jesus. And Jesus is saying, look, these parables are going to be an extension of the judgment of God upon you for the rejection that you have already chosen in your, your own heart and in your own life. And so the parables became like God in Romans chapter 1 when he tells through Paul that he is going to, what, turn people over to their sin. He's going to remove that, that pursuit of people and let them have what they want, which is their sin. Well, in the parables, God is turning people over to the hardness of their heart. You think back to Exodus chapter 7, or yeah, Exodus chapter 7 through 14, where you have Moses interacting with who? Charlton Heston, come on. Who is he interacting with? Pharaoh, right? And what's he trying to do? He's trying to get God's people freed from slavery in Egypt. And what does the text say so often in Exodus 7 through 14? That Pharaoh hardened his heart, but then what does it transition to? That what? That God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so we see that, that God will passively turn people over and shut off their ability to understand and to comprehend and harden their hearts even further. And that's part of the purpose of these parables that Jesus teaches. And our opening parable illustrates this, this point with this image of a, a farmer and his seed. And as he goes out to sow his seed, what Jesus teaches us in this parable is that there are different ways that the human heart will respond to the same message. The message is one. The word is one. The seed is the same across the board. What changes are the, the soils, which are the hearts of the people who hear the message. And so take your Bibles and look up, if you were already in Matthew 13, look up the page at Matthew 13, chapter, or chapter 13, verse 1, rather. Let's read verses 1 through 3. It says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables. Stop there for a second. 
So it says that same day. Well, we have to back up. This is the day after Jesus had had confrontations with the Pharisees. This is the day after Jesus had been in the house speaking and teaching the people. And the people were in there. And his mother and his brothers come up to him. And they, they knock on the door. And they say, hey, we need Jesus for a minute. Because at this point in time, they were a little embarrassed at, at the scene that Jesus was causing. And Jesus looks back at the people and says, who are my mother and brothers and my sisters except for those that what, do the will of God, right? Well, later on, on that same day, he gets up and he walks outside the house. And Jesus, what we have to understand is Jesus was famous, right? And Jesus, because he was so famous, the crowds had been gathering and flocking. And, and they become so great that he can't even stand on the, the shore and get space. He's got to get into a boat. And he pushes off from the, the shore and he sits down on the boat to be able to teach them. Well, if you've been to the Sea of Galilee before, it, it would have worked perfectly because all around the Sea of Galilee are these banks that come down into the water. And so it created a natural amphitheater. And then speaking across the, the water would have amplified his voice as well. So you have all of these people. Well, how many people? Well, we don't know for sure, but this same word for crowds is also used when he fed the 5,000 men in addition plus the, the women and children who weren't counted, right? Or when he fed the 4,000 men in the subsequent account. And again, there were women and children there that, that weren't counted. So, so this is very reasonably thousands of people that are gathered to hear Jesus. In fact, if you think about those times, those other times that he saw the crowds, in fact, there are times when it says in, in Matthew 9, 36, Jesus saw the crowds and felt what towards them? Compassion towards them. He sees them and feels compassion because he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. And then there are the, the times when the crowds are gathered, and I just alluded to it, they're listening to him preach and teach, and, and it's getting to the point where they're hungry now. And he looks at his disciples, and he says what? He says, feed them. And they say, well, Jesus, we only have a couple loaves and a couple of fish. He says, okay, bring them here. And he feeds the 5,000. Then later he feeds the 4,000. So we see these times when Jesus gathers the crowds and has compassion on them, feels this, this love for them. And exercises grace towards them. But again, this time it's different because he sits down in the boat and he pushes off from the water and he doesn't look at them all and say, hey, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe in the gospel. He has preached that message, but that's not the message that he preaches this time. This time he teaches in parables. This time he wields a medium that was going to teach those with ears to hear, but, uh, but further outcast and further isolate those who didn't have ears to hear. It's interesting, and it, it bears our attention. It's worthy of our attention to understand that, that God interacts with us in different ways at different times, doesn't he? And it's also worth us noting, as we begin to look at the parable of the sower, that the same word of God will have varied purposes any time that it's preached or taught, right? Our first point this evening is just that. Recognize the varied purposes of God's word. Recognize the varied purposes of God's word. There are times that Jesus issues the call far and wide. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then there are other times when Jesus issues the word in a way that it, it hides it, it, it veils it from the eyes of those who are lost. And this is true of our preaching and teaching on the weekends as well, isn't it? This is true of Pastor Mike's preaching. Pastor Mike can preach one message, right? And you could have three different types of, of people in the audience, and more than this, but let's just consider three. Pastor Mike preaches a sermon and there's a believer out there who hears the word of God preached and is convicted and has a soft heart and responds to that sermon and says, man, I need to repent for my sin and I need to put this off and excel still more in this area. And for that Christian that message is an instrument of sanctification in their life, right? God is growing them and sanctifying them and encouraging them and building up their faith. You've got somebody else in the audience, somebody who's not a Christian in the audience. They hear the same exact message, the same sermon that sanctifies the believer, the same content for them. They hear it and their response is one of cynicism and anger. And they harden their heart even further. And so for that person, what God used to sanctify the believer, maybe he's using to as an extension of, of judgment in the life and the heart of the unbeliever. And then maybe you even have a third person in the audience. 
a Christian who's been harboring sin in his life and he feels the weight of the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon him as that same sermon is being preached. But rather than responding in faith and repentance or rather than responding just in in repentance and sanctification, his response is one to say, I need to find a way to rationalize and justify and excuse and and make sure that I can figure out a way to, to not feel as guilty about this as I do right now. Do you see how it's the same sermon But God's word has three different effects in the life of three different people. See, God's word has varied purposes in our lives. And we know that even from the the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, where it says this. It says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And listen to this language that the writer of Hebrews uses. No one, no creature, believer, unbeliever alike, no one, no one is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So when the word goes out, it does the work of Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, no matter the eternal state of the person at hand. What changes is how you respond to being laid bare by the word. Is it rationalization? Is it cynicism and anger? Is it repentance? Right? God's word accomplishes different things in the lives of different people. Same word, same message, same sermon, totally different results. What do we do with that? Well, we understand and we trust that God wields his word as the divine surgeon Sovereignly, right? Knowing exactly what he's doing with every message that's preached. Knowing exactly what he's doing with every time the Bible is opened up and the word of God is read. He is the divine surgeon wielding the scalpel. Same message, different effects. Go back to the parable, pick up in verse four. You're like, this is a series on parables. We haven't even gotten into a parable yet. Here you go, okay? End of verse three. A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, Some of the seeds fell along the path, and the birds of the the air came and and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. And since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear So the parable begins, a sower went out to sow. One of the key elements of parables is that Jesus seized on on common imagery. Jesus didn't go to the imagery of the ivory towers of his day. He used something that everybody would have been able to understand. Israel was and still is a very agrarian culture. It's a farming culture. So Jesus, even from where he was on the Sea of Galilee, probably would have been able to look out and see the, the field, see places where people would have been sowing seed. And what would happen is, as you think about our farming ecosystem here and, and set up here, the, the, the farmer goes out and does what first? He plows the field before he sows the seed, doesn't he? Well, in ancient Israel, they, they didn't always do that. In fact, a lot of times they would scatter the seed and then go plow the field after they scattered the seed. Sometimes they would do it both before and after. But what they would do is that the sower would go out with a, a, a bag of seed at his, hand, at his side and he would walk through his field and he would take handfuls and scatter it by hand. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to spread the seed as evenly as he possibly could across the entirety of his field so that he would get the the best return on his crop. He didn't want all the seed clumped together because that wouldn't be good or allow for healthy growth. He also didn't want to, to leave any spots out. And so he would go to the perimeters of his field. Well, along the perimeters of the fields, we drive by all of these farmlands that have what up in front? They're, they're barbed wire fences, yes? They've got the fence posts, they've got the barbed wire, sometimes they've got gates or whatever it may be, and it's, hey, don't, don't trespass, don't cross over into my land. Well, that wasn't the way that farm fields worked in first century Israel. And so as the, the farmers would go around the perimeter of their field, they would have these paths, these roadways, because as people would walk on their journeys through the countryside, they would need to be able to tra- traverse and, and cross through these open farmlands. And so these paths were created by pilgrims, by people, as they would walk, as they would journey through the farmer's land. These paths then were worn down and they became hard packed and the soil was, was really non-existent there anymore. 
And those would go a long way. Well, as the, the farmer is sowing and trying to, to cover as much of his field as he possibly can, it's understandable that he's going to get near that path. And as he's scattering the seed with his handfuls, some of the seed is going to go out and fall on that path. And that's what Jesus says. There was some seed that fell along the path in the second part of verse 13. Well, these paths being hard-packed, well-trodden, they were not places that a seed could penetrate in put down roots. And so that seed was, was just exposed and it just sat there. And one of two things would happen. Somebody would come along and, and walk over that seed and trample that seed and crush that seed so that it was no longer good anymore. Or you would have a, a bird come down and the bird would seek out the seed, find the seed, grab the seed and carry it off. And that seed is useless now, right? So Jesus says that's one of the, the areas that the seed falls, but then he keeps going. He says, other seed in verse five fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up. And since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. So this is, is ground. Don't think rocky soil as though it has a bunch of rocks in it. Because any farmer who was a, a decent farmer in first century Israel, one of the things that they would have been sure to do is to clear their field of rocks. In fact, if you wanted to, to harm your, your worst enemy, and he was a farmer, one of the things that you would do is take all your rocks and throw them in his field. That's why the writer of Ecclesiastes, that's why Solomon says there's a time to gather stones and a time to cast stones. In fact, throwing rocks in an enemy's field was a, a part of warfare. You'd want to destroy the crops. So it's not as though this farmer in Jesus' parable is walking out and he's got all of these rocks in his field. It's not that. What it means is that there is an area where the soil is there and it looks like it's good soil, but that soil under, underneath that soil, there's a bedrock that runs underneath there that prevents the roots from, from going down deep in that soil. And so the seed is scattered. And from the farmer's perspective, as he's going out and sowing, he doesn't necessarily know that there's a, a rocky terrain underneath this. But that's the reality. And the seed hits and it's watered and it begins to show signs of life. But as you can think that shallow soil, man, when the sun comes up, that shallow soil is going to heat up like crazy, isn't it? Versus the, the deep, rich soil. And so the sun comes up and that, that soil begins to heat up more and more and more. Every single day the sun comes up, that soil is getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And that poor little seedling can't stand the heat. And it says in the text, it, it withers and dies. Well, there's another soil. The soil that was described as among the, the thorns, verse 7. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. These thorny bushes would have been the, the weeds of this day. And you might think, well, why didn't he just plow through the weeds? Well, to plow through the weeds is actually not helpful. Because to plow through the, through the weeds takes all of the, the seeds and all of the roots of the weeds and, and scatters them and spreads them out even further. So the farmer would have allowed the, the, the weeds to grow until harvest time. You remember another parable that Jesus told about the wheat and the tares? You remember that one? And he said, let them both grow together because we don't want to accidentally uproot the good with the bad. And so the farmer would have allowed these, these weeds in certain portions of his field, again, probably around the perimeters of the field. But the problem is the good seed, it would have fallen there. And maybe the soil was deep enough, but it was competing against something. It was competing against these weeds. It was competing against these thorns. And the thorns, they crowd out the, the nutrients. They crowd out the, the life. They, they block the sun from getting to these seeds and these Seeds, just like the, the three previous ones, they end up useless. And then there's finally the, the fourth soil. Verse 8, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This, this production from the seed that falls on the good soil is, is an, an, an immense return on the, the investment. To get a tenfold return, and, and this is talking financial more than it is return on like if you get one pumpkin and one pumpkin produces 10 pumpkins from the seeds, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the return on investment here. And he says, some is going to give you a hundredfold. To get tenfold would have been a good crop. Hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. This is good soil, and it is evident that it's good soil. Well, as we're going to find out in looking at the interpretation of this parable here momentarily, 
these various soils represent the hearts of the hearers of the word, the hearers of the gospel. And what we realize is, is that these are our four people, four different types of people, one message, as we just talked about, one message, four different responses to that one message. And what, what I want you to think about, men, is I want you to think about the people in your lives right now and realize that the people in your lives right now, they, they fall into one of these four categories. And as you think about taking the word of God to them, I want you to think about working hard to take the word to those with good soil. Second point this evening is this. Keep seeking the good soil in those around you. Keep seeking the good soil in those around you. And you say, well, Pastor PJ, how do I know who has the good soil? Well, you don't. You guys know what this is? I didn't until I Googled it this morning. It's a soil tester. You can put that in the ground and it's going to tell you the pH level and it's going to tell you the fertility of the soil and it's going to tell you whether or not this is good ground to be able to, to plant in. Guess what we don't have? We don't have soil detectors for people. It might get kind of weird to go just stabbing people with these little devices going, oh, yep, you're right for the gospel. Let's sit down and talk about Jesus. We don't know, right? And that's the point. That's what I'm trying to drive at. You men are surrounded by people in your life and you don't know the state of their hearts. You don't know whether they're good soil or whether it's rocky soil or whether it's thorny soil or whether it's the path. The only thing that you know is what you have been called to do is to go out and sow the seed. You'll notice, and, and we'll get there, in the, the parable as it's interpreted, as it's explained by Jesus, the, the sower is not specifically identified. Initially, and in context, it's Jesus, right? But before Jesus, we could say the sower was John the Baptist, yes? Because John the Baptist is the first one to come on the scene and say, hey, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then John the Baptist is arrested, and the text, I, I love the way that, that the Bible is so, is so continuous with this, this message, because on the day that John the Baptist is arrested, Jesus goes out preaching what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus is taken up into heaven, and he gives his disciples the message of going out to say what? Repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the sower is the one that goes with the message. Well, man, all of us, have been commissioned as sowers by God. All of us have been given the message, given the good news to go out and to sow far and wide and to, to scatter the seed. Jesus told his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of who? Low-hanging fruit, right? Go find the people that are ready to hear the gospel and share the gospel with them and make disciples of them. Go to the Christianized nations and go make disciples of those people. Go to the red states and go make disciples of those people. No, what does he say? He goes, says, go therefore and make disciples of, of everyone. Well, if we're going to make disciples of everyone, we have to scatter the seed. We have to sow the message. We have to, to preach the gospel far and wide. And men, you play a role in that. You have a field to cultivate wherever God has planted you. You have a field to cultivate in your neighborhood. You have a field to cultivate in your workplace. You have a field to cultivate in, at your kids' baseball games. You have a field to cultivate with your family. And you need to be scattering the seed. And yes, you need to be working and seeking out the good soil in those around you. Well, how do I do that? Well, it looks like making sure that you are explaining the gospel clearly and continually praying that God would prepare the hearts of those that are going to hear from you. And being willing to, to answer the questions like Pastor Mike preached on a couple weeks ago. Being willing to be the, the ambassador for Christ that you are as a new creation in Christ from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Being willing to be God's representative and say, hey, look, let's talk. What are your objections? Let me find this out. Let's get to the bottom of this. And all the while, what God is doing through you being willing to do that is he's using you to, to till up the soil in the hearts of those that you're pursuing. Again, the, the breadth here, Acts 1.8. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, men, for some of you, the ends of the earth is the neighbor across the street. It's your coworker. It's your wife. It's your kids. We need to be involved scattering the seed. 
And maybe you're thinking, yeah, okay, Pastor PJ, I get that, but I know these people that you're telling me I need to go to the gospel with. And I know, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are the path and they're not going to listen to me. Or maybe you think, well, I've already shared the gospel with this person and you know what, it fell on the path. Or it fell on rocky soil. And they, they believed initially, but now they're not walking with the Lord anymore. I've done my part. I shared the gospel with them. Remember this from 1 Corinthians chapter 3? It's a different context. Paul's saying, hey, quit, quit following celebrity pastors is what Paul's saying here. But remember what he says here, because it bears witness to what we're talking about right here. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Look, Paul says, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Man, we need to remember that. When you look at somebody and you say, well, I, they're so clearly the path, it's not even funny. It's, why sow seed there and waste my time when I know that they're going to reject this? Do you? Do you know that they're going to reject this? Think of Paul's own testimony. When did God save Paul? Was he good soil to anybody when, when, when he was saved? Uh-uh. He was going to imprison Christians and kill Christians. And God radically grabbed hold of his heart and transformed his life. Right? I mean, God is the master of plowmen. He is the one that tills up the soil of the heart when he is ready to till up the soil of the heart. It's not our duty. It's not our job to diagnose someone's heart and their soil. Our duty is to spread the word and to scatter the seed. And so maybe you think, well, there's, why bother? Bother, please bother. If nothing else, you're, you're obeying the Lord and storing up eternal reward for yourself in heaven. At least that's what you're doing. At most, man, God might water that seed and cause the growth in that moment. And how much joy would there be to see that happen? Or maybe you think, well, I've shared the gospel already with that person and they've already rejected me. Great, go back and do it again. Well, I've shared the gospel with that person and, and they responded and they even got baptized here at Compass. But you know what? They're not walking with the Lord anymore. So I guess that's that. No, it's not that, Right? These, these soils that we're talking about in the parable, there's nowhere where it implies that any of these states are permanent. Again, God is the divine plowman. He tills up the soil of the heart when he chooses to till up the soil of the heart. So what's our job? Our job is to sow and to keep working for the good soil, to keep seeking, to keep pursuing, to keep trying to, to find the good soil. And here's what I know. I know one thing's for sure. Man, I don't want to show up at the Bema Seat of Christ with a bag full of seed that I didn't scatter. Paul says this in Romans 10. He says, how are they going to call on him in whom they've never believed? And how are they to believe in the one of whom they've, they've never heard? And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they going to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of the one who preaches good news. Men, we are all sent to preach the good news. And that is the way that God tills up the soil and sees unbelievers become believers. And so we need to work for the good soil, keep seeking the good soil in those around you. But turn over to Mark's gospel, if you will. Mark chapter four. And I want to look at the interpretation from Mark's account. We believe that, that Mark's gospel, it's, at least it's a, a good chance that Mark's gospel was actually informed by Peter that Peter and Mark were good friends and that Peter was actually giving Mark the, the, the details of what was going on through a lot of the, the gospel account that Mark records here. Peter would have certainly been there as, as Jesus is teaching these parables. And so in Mark 4.13, after we've read a lot of what we just read in Matthew, that he began to teach and then they asked him, well, why are you teaching in parables? Same kind of content. And then he gets into the parable and then he gives us the interpretation beginning in Mark chapter four, verse 13. He says this, he says, do you not understand this parable? Because they went to Jesus and they said, hey, can you explain this to us? He says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? 
The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Well, it begins with Jesus, maybe a, a gentle rebuke towards the disciples. Do, do you not understand this? And we may be tempted to say, well, does this show that the disciples didn't have ears to hear? No. No, it wasn't that Jesus wasn't willing to explain a parable. Those without ears to hear never went to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, can you explain this for us? We're a little fuzzy on what you meant there. Can you help us understand this? Jesus is willing to, to, to teach. Jesus is patient with his disciples. He says, look, how, if you don't understand this one, you have to get this one if you're going to get any of them. Why? Well, this is foundational to everything else, isn't it? This is about who is in the kingdom and who's not in the kingdom. And as he goes on to preach all of these other parables about the kingdom of heaven and about all these other things, we have to understand fundamentally and foundationally what it looks like for us to be in or outside the kingdom of God. And he begins with this parable. And he says, the sower sows the word. Again, we've covered that, right? It's the word. It's the gospel. It's the message of the kingdom, as Matthew's interpretation records Jesus saying. But... What did Jesus say? Repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? Go out and preach the good news of the gospel is what he commissioned the disciples to go do. So this is the gospel that we're talking about. The sower sows the word. The, the preacher preaches the gospel. The evangelist evangelizes with the gospel. And then he says some fall on the path that we talked about earlier. But then he explains further. He says, these, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and snatches or takes away the word that was sown in them. Uh, we may think of the, the path and immediately run to Richard Dawkins and atheists and the people that hate Christianity. And, and sure, we can, we can say that they would be on the path, but I think in the context, remember who Jesus has just been interacting with and debating with? They were the who? The, the Pharisees. So I think Jesus is talking about those that are so religious that they, they don't recognize that they need the gospel. They're so consumed in their own self-righteousness that they don't recognize that they need an alien righteousness. And so their hearts are closed to the message to repent and believe for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. In Acts chapter 7, in Stephen's testimony, right before the, the end of Stephen's life, he confronts the Pharisees and he says this, you stiff-necked people. The, the hard path is the hardened heart's or as they used to say in the Old Testament, that Stephen reaches back and grabs this imagery, this imagery rather. You stiff-necked person. You are stubborn, is what Stephen is saying. And again, he's talking to the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jews here. Uncircumcised in heart and in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Or how about in John chapter 8, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he says, you are of your father the, the devil. Satan comes and snatches away. Did the Pharisees hear the teaching of Jesus? Yeah. Right, and in fact, take Nicodemus, for example. Did Nicodemus hear the teaching of Jesus? Yes, in fact, in a way that was even above and beyond what the common people heard because he, remember John chapter three, we'll get there eventually. He went to Jesus at night and said, hey, teacher, can you help me understand what you're doing and who you are? Well, Nicodemus isn't saved there, but the seed was sown in Nicodemus's heart. And then what do we find later on in Jesus' life towards the crucifixion and after the crucifixion? Who's on the scene helping things out at that point and, and on the side of Jesus? Nicodemus. So what's the difference? Well, those who Satan came and snatched the seed from. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. What does that look like for Satan to snatch away the seed? That seems, okay, that's, 
illustrious, it's this kind of flower, flowery imagery there. What, what should we understand by that? I think John MacArthur's helpful here, so I'm going to quote him here, uh, just because I, I don't think I can improve on what he says here. He speaks about Satan, and he says this, about Satan snatching away the seed. He says, he confuses people through false teachers who come in Christ's name, but subtly attack or undermine the truth of the gospel. He, Satan, also exploits sinful human passions, fear of what others might think, pride, stubbornness, prejudice, or various lusts. He appeals to the fallen heart's love for the pleasures of sin. It's easy for him, for Satan, to make himself appealing to those who love darkness. Then, having gained the sinner's trust and attention, he diverts the mind from the truth of the word, effectively snatching it away from the person's consciousness. This is how Satan snatches the truth away. That's not for you. You don't need that. You don't need the gospel. Oh, that, they're just religious extremists over there at that church. They, you don't need that. Oh, they're intolerant. They're bigoted. They're prejudiced. You don't need that. Oh, you know what? If, if you were to follow this, this Jesus person, you'd have to totally give up all of the things that you love in life. And why would you want to do that? Right? These are, these are the, the, the thoughts. These are the, the battles. These are the, the, the wars that rage in the mind of those who are on the path. And, and before long, that seed is gone. He goes on in verse 16, though, to describe the next group. He says, these immediately receive it with joy. And yet they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Uh, but think about that. They immediately receive it with joy. How often have we seen this? It looks so promising. I've seen it so many times in ministry. You share the gospel, especially y'all in, in student ministry. You share the gospel, you see the initial excitement, the faith and the repentance, and they're so excited to tell everyone. Sometimes they're even in the baptismal tank. They're bearing witness, they're giving their testimony. And then not too far down the road, they realize, wait a minute, the cost is too great for me on this. I'm gonna have to give up. I'm gonna have to suffer to follow Jesus. Wait a minute, the culture doesn't like the fact that I follow Jesus. Wait a minute, my friends don't like the fact that I follow Jesus. Wait a minute, my family doesn't like the fact that I follow Jesus. Wait a minute, Jesus, I didn't sign up for all of this take up your cross and follow me stuff. And they, having no root, no depth, nothing anchoring themselves to Jesus, they fall away. Jesus uses two words, tribulation or persecution. Tribulation can, can mean anything. It's a broad catch-all category. It can be just simply suffering, right? I, I, this, is the, uh, this person is the, the health, wealth, and prosperity disciple. The person that, that buys into the lie that Jesus wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy for the rest of your life. That come to Jesus and all your problems will be taken care of. Come to Jesus and you'll be good to go. Unless, that is, you don't have enough faith. But that's on you. That's not on me. No refunds. But the problem is they want a refund on the whole thing and they end up cashing it in for one because they've believed a false gospel. They've believed a gospel that's about temporal enjoyment, that's about shallow satisfaction. And when that shallow satisfaction doesn't come through for them, doesn't last, think of the book of Ecclesiastes. They're left saying, man, I want my money back. I'm done with this thing. They don't have the mindset of James. In James 1, 2 through 4, when James says, count it all joy, my brothers. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Well, they fall away. That word for fall away is the word in the Greek that actually means to fall away into sin. Not just to fall away, to become disenfranchised, to become disenchanted, but they're led away into sinful pursuits and sinful desires. Verse 19, then you've got the, the, the thorn, thorny soil, and they again receive the word, and initially it looks so promising. But then the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. These are those who hear the word, and you think that they're there, but in the end, they're not. 
See, the only genuine soil that we have is the final soil. And the reason why we say it's the only genuine one is because it ultimately ends up doing what? Bearing fruit. And so our final point tonight is this. Expect fruit from saving faith. Expect fruit from saving faith. This is the difference, men, between all of the other soils in this fourth soil. Is that this fourth soil stays the course and produces a crop. Whereas the others, well, the first one, there's no sign of life at all. The other two that had initial signs of life, they wither and die because there's no root, there's no depth, it wasn't genuine, there was no actual true life to be found there, right? It's like when your kid brings home the lima bean in a cup from school and you're like, what what am I going to do with this? But you know if you leave it in the Dixie cup, what's going to happen? It's going to die, right? Saving faith doesn't die, men. And this may be a, a, a message, this may be a concept that makes you squirm a little bit in your seat because we're talking about works in faith here and I, uh, mm, I just don't like that, right? But notice it doesn't say expect salvation from fruits. It says expect fruits from salvation. Right? This is James chapter two when James says, hey, you say you have faith, great. The demons say they have faith. In fact, the demons don't say they have faith. And you know what? Their faith causes them to tremble before God. James says, show me, right? James is from Missouri. Show me your faith. By your what? Your works. That's why Luther said James is a strawy epistle. He didn't like it because he thought James and Paul didn't agree. No, they did agree. But they were just emphasizing different things. Same coin, two, two sides. But, but Paul agreed with this point, didn't he? 2 Corinthians 13, 5, what does Paul say there? He says that we need to do what? Examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. How are you going to examine yourself? Well, what does Paul do in Galatians and in Philippians for us and in Colossians for us? He gives us the marks of what? Of conversion. Put off, put on. Keep seeking the things above. Don't do these things. Hey, here's the fruit of the flesh, Galatians 5. Here's the fruit of the spirit, Galatians 5. Paul wants us to examine ourselves by holding us, ourselves up to the word of God. And, and I don't have time to go there right now. And maybe you guys can do it in the small groups. But 2 Peter chapter 1. When Peter says, you've got everything necessary for life and godliness. Therefore, make every effort. Here you go. Here's a, a concept. To supplement your faith. What? Supplement your faith. And then in that list, he's talking about with works, with virtue. What, Peter? Supplement, help my faith out with works and virtue? Yeah, because Peter says, you know what? If you're doing these things and and these things are taken off and they're increasing in your life, you are confirming your calling and election. You want eternal security? Man, run hard after being obedient to the Lord. That's what the message is. And that's flowing out of this. The reason is because the only true saving faith is a faith that produces fruit. And that's Jesus' message in the the opening parable, the parable of the sower here. And we need to expect fruit from saving faith. Right? You go to the doctor, right? You go to the doctor and the doctor looks at you, gives you a once-over, checks you out, does some blood work on you, and looks at your symptoms and says, you know... I'm noticing some things here on this just annual physical that that have me concerned. I'd like us to go a little bit deeper. I'd like us to run some diagnostic tests to make sure that there's nothing worse going on than what we might see on the surface. When's the last time your doctor said that and you looked at me and you said, you're a legalist. Can't believe that you would just look at the fact that my cholesterol numbers came up and think that I've got clogged arteries. Who are you? can't believe that you would look at my white blood cell count and think that maybe I've got cancer and you want to do a CAT scan to make sure that everything's clear on me. Who are you? You're, you're judgmental, aren't you? Probably go to one of those Bible-thumping medical schools, didn't you? You guys get the point, right? We don't do that with our doctors, but we do it with our pastors and our small group leaders and our brothers in Christ, don't we? When our brother comes alongside us and says, hey, brother, I'm, I'm concerned. I see some things on the surface that maybe we need to take a little bit of a diver, deeper dive and, and just make sure that everything's in, in order. You are such a legalist. I can't believe that you would ever question where I am in Christ. Now, that can be done badly, right? 
Doctors can have bad bedside manner. Christians can have bad bedside manner when it comes to this. But men, we need to be following the consistent pattern and testimony of the New Testament. Galatians 5, Paul tells us that the Spirit produces fruit. James 2, James says that we have to show our faith by works. Jude 12, Jude says that false teachers are known by a lack of fruit. Matthew 12, 33, right before this parable, Jesus told the, the Pharisees, a tree is known by its fruit. And here, Jesus makes it clear the only response to the gospel that saves is the response that bears fruit. Man, if a parable is a story with a point, the point of this parable is that the gospel will be heard by many, but only those whose hearts the divine plowman has tilled up and prepared. Only those hearts that receive the word with that rich and good soil and bear fruit. Only those hearts are the ones who will be saved. Man, there's the diagnostic question for each of you tonight, and that is, which soil are you? There's the questions asked about your family as well. Which, which soil is your wife and your kids or your cousins or your grandparents or your aunt and uncle, your brothers and sisters? And there's the question to ask, how much seed do you have left in your seed bag? But I want you to be encouraged, men. Here's what I want you to be encouraged by. I want you to be encouraged by the fact that none of us have a soil tester. Your job is not to go out and diagnose whether or not somebody's ready for the gospel. Your job is to go out and do what? Share the gospel, right? That's why those that, that, that push back on, on the, the Calvinistic view of, of soteriology, of, of salvation, they say, well, you guys clearly don't believe in, in evangelism then since God's gonna save everybody. No, it's, it's quite the opposite. We just get to go and evangelize with no pressure because we're not saving anybody. Men, you're not saving none of us in this room myself included, at the top of that list. None of us have saved anyone. You were not saved by anyone but God, right? He's the one that saves. We go out and we share the gospel. We don't have a soil tester. So whoever that is in your life that you're thinking, man, they're clearly the hard path and it's gonna take a miracle for them to come around and come to faith in God. He can do it. He can do it. But how are they going to be saved unless they believe? How are they gonna believe unless they hear? How are they going to hear unless you preach? Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word and grateful that somebody came into our lives and scattered that word and, and by your grace, you had tilled our hearts to receive it. God, I pray that our fruit would continue to abound and multiply to, to 30, 60, 100 fold and, and more all to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, use us to scatter the seed in the lives of others and prepare the hearts of those that we have in our lives to hear the word, to receive the word genuinely and, and, and to truly repent and put their faith in Jesus as their savior and to begin to grow and bear fruit themselves, God. May we be faithful to the task at hand. Lord, I pray for those specifically in the room who have loved ones whose hearts have been hardened. I pray that you would, you would break up that ground, that you would make it fertile soil again to hear the gospel so that they might be saved. Lord, I thank you that none of us were beyond the reach of your grace, and I thank you that as long as they're still today, we can wrestle for the souls of the, the lost in our lives by going to them with the gospel and by praying that you would move in their lives. Lord, do great things. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus, the ultimate sower. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.